It had to have been an incredibly long walk. Some 1,500 miles, in fact, from Rome, the place of origin of this letter to Colossae, the intended destination of this particular letter and this particular man. Rome was the capital city of the empire. It was said that all roads led to Rome. It was a great and throbbing metropolis with strangers crowding its gates. And like any great city of the past or present, it was a place where one could kind of disappear and seek anonymity if need be. To leave the city, to leave those crowds, was to be back out in the proverbial open. The man making the journey was a man by the name of Onesimus. Sounds like a heroic character, doesn't it? From maybe Homer's Iliad or or Odyssey, Onesimus the Great. Something like that. That's not who Onesimus was. And his journey, at least in his mind, while making the walk, was no adventure. He probably believed it was a death march. He was coming out of the dark and the shadows where he had successfully hidden. He was stepping into the light where he could easily be seen, be recognized. You see, Onesimus was a slave. Slavery in the Roman culture in the first century, vastly different from the slavery we're familiar with from the 18th and 19th century of America. In first century Rome, it's estimated that anywhere from 20 to 30 percent, that means one in three to one in five people walking around in the cities were in fact slaves. And the slaves walked around the city during their free time and others would not know just by looking who was free and who wasn't. Many slaves were reasonably educated, trusted even with delicate personal matters of their masters. And these slaves would go along the streets conducting business. Many of them earned wages, good wages, with a bonus type system for good and faithful service. Free persons would often sell themselves to a wealthy person to gain advantages, to to gain contacts and resources, and then use that same money later to buy back their freedom from their masters. Whatever you think about slavery in the first century, don't view it through the lens of our kind of American slavery system. It was different in many ways. But at the same time, Don't romanticize, don't make palatable the slavery of the first century either. Roman law gave complete freedom to the masters to do anything with slaves, and by anything, I mean anything, up to and including having them killed with no due process. The slave had no legal standing, absolutely zero legal rights. That's what made the walk of Onesimus so ominous, so long, so tedious. He was a slave walking back into the home of his owner, the owner from whom he escaped. And more than likely, based on some of the things said in the letter, the owner, named Philemon, from whom he stole. The letter we're about to read is fascinating to me. It's written by the Apostle Paul around the year 60 to 62 AD. He's writing it while in prison in Rome. This letter addressed to his personal friend Philemon. 
In the same way that you would write a letter or an email to your best childhood friend, to your former college roommate, to the best man, to the maid of honor in your wedding. That's the type of letter we're about to read. It's different from the other letters of Paul. We get the personal, even softer side of the apostle. John Calvin said about this letter written by Paul to Philemon about Onesimus, on behalf of a man of the lowest condition, Paul condescends to such modesty and humility that hardly anywhere else do we have such a living picture of the meekness of his character. So that's the backdrop. Let's turn our attention to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. You'll find our text, if you're using the Pew Bible, on page 1000. The book is entitled Philemon. If you're looking for it, go to Revelation, go back several books. Once you get to Hebrews, it's the very next book back. It's Philemon, it's one page. It's easily overlooked. But this is God's word for us today. So let's give our attention to the reading and the preaching of it. Greeting, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, Aphia, our sister, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but out of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he has parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all, owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, 
sends you greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow co-workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Gracious God, be with us now as we consider this letter. You've gathered each and every one of us here to hear a word from you. In much the same way, the recipient of this letter heard a personal message from its author. You, the author of these scriptures, have something you want to say and something you want us to hear. It doesn't matter our age, our background, our story, our failures, or our greatest accomplishments. If we pile them all up, it won't make us more apt to hear you, nor more likely to tune you out. These things don't grant us entrance, nor do they keep us apart from you. You're not impressed nor confounded by these things, for you ordained all of them, just as you ordained that we be in this place, in this seat, even in this pulpit right now. Each of us suffer from a myriad of spiritual disorders. We find it hard to focus and listen and to be still and know that you are God. We can swing to extremes of two different poles. On the one end, feeling absolutely enraptured by your love and grace and then find ourselves feeling as though you've abandoned, forgotten, neglected, or rejected us, and we swing from end to end at a manic pace. As Jesus was patient and loving and kind to the lepers, to the lame, and the lost, so be patient with us, we ask this day. Heal us and allow us to hear you, we pray. Speak, O Lord, for your servants listen. In Christ's name, amen. This morning, I want us to consider three things, and they're written there in your bulletin for reference. I want us to consider the circumstances of this letter, the appeal of the Apostle Paul, and the conclusion of the matter. The circumstances, the appeal, and the conclusion of the matter. So first, the circumstances. You don't have to be a biblical scholar to see what's going on. From verse 10 and verse 16, Paul makes it pretty clear the social standing of our friend Onesimus, a slave in the home of Philemon. Now the fact that he owns slaves makes Philemon not just a friend of Paul's, but a wealthy friend of Paul's. He was a man of great influence and means. Philemon, we believe, had a large home. One of the reasons for having slaves would have been to help with the upkeep of a large piece of property. But there are other wealth markers, if you will, throughout this letter, if you'll just look for them. For instance, in verse 22, Paul requests of Philemon to prepare a guest room for him because he hopes to come and visit him. An answer, Paul says, to the prayers that Philemon had been praying. <laughs> but notice it says, a guest room, not the guest room. But there's also another clue. It's there in verse 2. Paul begins his letter and he greets Philemon, to whom the letter is primarily written. He, he greets Aphia, believed by many to be Philemon's wife, perhaps their son or a young man who lives around them named Archippus. But then Paul writes this, and the church that meets in your home. Now, those of you who have done any entertaining, maybe even over the Christmas or New Year's season, you know that if you're going to entertain people in your home, you have to have room. Needless to say, if you're hosting a church in your home, you have to have a sizable home. 
especially if the church you're hosting is in a large city like Colossae. And along with this letter, Paul had a letter for that church as well. In fact, we're going to begin studying that together on Sunday evenings in just a few weeks, on January 16th. I hope you'll come back as we look at Paul's second letter. Onesimus wandered away, or more than likely fled from the home of Philemon in the city of Colossae. As we'll see in a minute, he probably helped himself to some or a lot of Philemon's possessions. And seeking to start a new life for himself, or at the very least, to perhaps save his life, he fled to Rome. As I mentioned in the beginning, there he could blend in and be lost among the crowd. But it's there in Rome where Onesimus met Paul. I wish we knew how they met. We're, we're not told but it had to be interesting whatever the circumstances. Because you see, it wasn't, it wasn't easy to get to the Apostle Paul because you see, he was under house arrest. We don't know how they met. We just know that they met. And we know the result of that meeting. Paul shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with Onesimus. Look again at verse 10. He says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. There you have the result of their meeting. Onesimus, seeking to get lost, was found by God and saved by his grace. It also becomes pretty clear that just as openly as Paul shared the gospel of Jesus Christ, Onesimus shared his background and story with Paul. How else do you explain the familiarity of Paul with the strained relationship between Onesimus and Philemon? That, in general, are the circumstances behind this letter. But we learn even more through the details of this personal appeal of the Apostle Paul to his friends. So let's, let's dig a little deeper this morning. I appeal to you, Paul says, for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Now, if you're Philemon, reading this letter... This letter that was handed to you while you looked into the terrified eyes of an escaped slave, you'd probably be tempted to stop at verse 10. To laugh almost mockingly and maybe say out loud, child, <laughs> a child of the Apostle Paul. If the Paul I knew, Onesimus, knew what you had done to me, there's no way he'd call you child. As if he'd adopt you. You didn't tell him, did you, Onesimus? You didn't tell him that you were a slave. You didn't tell him that you ran away from me. You didn't tell him that you robbed me blind. You're not just a runaway slave. You're a liar. You're a thief. You didn't even have the character to tell him exactly who you are, did you, Onesimus? And then as you found the place where you left off in reading the letter, you'd see Paul's very next words. Verse 11. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you. You see, during this time, if a free person received a runaway slave, he was under obligation by law to send him back. And if he couldn't convince the slave to go back, 
Then he was told to sell the slave to someone else and then send the money back to the original owner. Paul makes clear in verse 12 to Philemon, he's aware that Onesimus is a slave. To Philemon, that might have assuaged him some, but there's still the matter of what was taken from him. If Paul would have known about that, then he wouldn't have been so quick to receive Onesimus and bestow upon him the title of son. But then Philemon would have come to what we call verse 18. If he's done you any wrong, if he owes you anything, charge it to me. There's very little question what's occurred. Onesimus had stolen from Philemon, and probably not some small sum. More than likely, he helped himself to family treasures, to jewels, precious coins, family heirlooms. Paul says, Philemon, total up the cost of all of that, and if he owes you, I'll cover it. Charge it to me. That would clear the debt. But Paul goes even further. Paul appeals to Philemon to welcome Onesimus. He even uses a pun that's lost in our English translations, but it's there in verse 11. You see, the name Onesimus was a common name for slaves because in Greek, Onesimus meant useful. So go back and look at verse 11. Paul says, I know that useful was formerly useless to you, but now he's become useful to both you and to me. So he makes this appeal. He says Onesimus is worth something. He's useful. He's now worthy now because he's a brother in Christ. And if that doesn't convince you, Philemon, he's useful because, again, I will repay you. I'm good for it. It costs you nothing to receive him and welcome him. I paid the price for him. Verse 17. So if you consider me a partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all, owes you anything, charge that to my account. I'll repay it to say nothing of the fact of your owing me even your own self. Confident, Paul says, of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, or one more thing, prepare a guest room for me. For I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. See, Paul is hoping to come for a visit. I love to listen at times to a minister by the name of Haddon Robinson, former president of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, former professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. Dr. Robinson, in um, his explanation of this text, imagines Philemon's natural response. Even trusts that he would have said something along the lines of, okay, Onesimus, you can put your stuff back in the old quarters, you can go to the bunkhouse, drop your stuff, and you can get back to work with the rest of them. And he imagines at this point that Athia had come out to join her husband, perhaps looking over his shoulder, or perhaps taking the letter from him to read it for herself. And then she begins to address her husband. She reviews Paul's letter. She says, wait a minute, Philemon. Would you have Paul sleep with the other slaves? Would you have the Apostle Paul doing work around the house? 
Phil, you and I both know you wouldn't dare do that. And yet that's just what you told Onesimus. Look, here, honey, it it says, if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. And, and again, here, it says, I write you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. Philemon, Paul's like a brother to you. You would. In fact, you are, even now, preparing a place for him. Inasmuch as it would be done for Paul, that's what he's asking you to do for Onesimus. You wouldn't put Paul to work. You'd make sure his every need was taken care of. And as much as it would be done for Paul, shouldn't that be what we're doing for Onesimus? That's something, isn't it? That's a big ask. That's what it says in the text. So with the circumstances laid out before us, having heard Paul's personal appeal to his good friend Philemon, what's it all mean? What's the conclusion of the matter? That's the final thing I want us to to think about together. And if you haven't been paying attention up to this point, I beg you, please don't drift off now. Tune in. Focus in. Let me ask you this question. Why do you think, out of all of Paul's letters, why do you think this one was kept? Let me put it another way. We're not God. That's a good thing. But out of all the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote, the hundreds, the thousands, why do you think God, why do you think God in his all-powerful providence chose to keep this one-page letter and to preserve it through the power of his Holy Spirit in the canon of the Scriptures? Think about that. Why do we have the privilege of studying this together? There might be several reasons, but I want want to venture one major guess today. And, And I think I'm on firm ground when I say this. I think to understand the gospel, one's got to understand Philemon. Onesimus rebelled against his master, fled from him knowing that the penalty for his rebellion would be death. And he ran. He ran as far away as he could get from Philemon, his master. And if you can understand what it means to be a runaway from a master and that the penalty for that was death, well, then you understand what it means when the Bible says that you were a slave to sin because you rebelled against God who created you. And the penalty for that sin is death. You understand Onesimus? You understand a little bit more about me and about you. And if you can put yourself in Paul's sandals, if you can see how one might go to bat for another who had become so meaningful to you, If you can even foresee, putting yourself figuratively in between the one who had been betrayed and the betrayer. If you can see putting your reputation and your relationship on the line for someone you love to another that you loved. 
Well, then you understand what it means when the Bible says that Jesus stands in our place before God and intercedes for us. And if you can understand what Paul meant when he says, if Onesimus owes you anything, well, then you put that on my account. And if you can understand how that transfer of balance works, well, then you understand what the Bible means when over 150 times in the New Testament, the Bible says that we are in Christ, that we are in him. It is the major way the Bible speaks of those who belong to Jesus. Ephesians 1.6 in the King James Version. It's similar in the ESV. I think it's better in the King James. It says this. It says that we as Christians are accepted in the beloved. We can begin to understand what that means when we understand Paul's letter to Philemon. To be accepted and treated, not based on the basis of what we've done, but based on the character and the merits of another. And if you can understand how Paul fully expects Philemon to prepare a place for him, not only that, but to request and expect Philemon to, expect, uh, to accept Onesimus as if it were Paul himself, well, then you can understand why Jesus asked God in John 17 that his followers be one with God, just as Jesus is one with God. And why he says, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. And you can understand why with confidence Jesus can say, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I'm going there to prepare a place, to prepare a room for you. If you can understand that Paul expected Philemon to treat Onesimus as Philemon would treat Paul, then you understand what the Bible means when it says that those who are in Christ, in the beloved, will be treated by God the way God treats Jesus, the one exalted to the highest place in heaven. And if you can understand how Philemon could think so much of his good friend Paul, that he would do absolutely everything that he asks in this letter. Well, then you can understand how it is that God would love his son, Jesus Christ, so much that he would do everything he asks and accept runaway slaves deserving death into his presence with delight, with rejoicing, with love, not begrudgingly, enthusiastically. You see, if you can understand Philemon, you can understand the gospel. Now do you see? Do you see why God made sure he preserved Paul's letter? I believe he did it so that we could understand him. I believe he did it so we could understand Jesus, his beloved whom he loves. Maybe you're here this morning or watching online or listening to a downloaded sermon and saying, that's just it. I, I know I've rebelled against God and I know that I've been on the run, but I'm, I'm scared. 
I'm afraid. I just wish there was someone like Paul to go before me and plead my case. I've got good news for you this morning. And it's even better than you think. You don't have the Apostle Paul. You have Jesus, God's own son. And you don't have a letter. You have a cross and a risen Christ. And just as Philemon would be reminded that Onesimus' debt was paid every time he saw that letter, God knows your debt has been paid every time he glances at his beloved son who sits at his right hand for all eternity. You don't need a letter. You need Jesus. And he says that he he promises that he will do that for you. He'll save you. He'll intercede for you. He'll welcome you. Just ask. Just ask. Do you know Onesimus was a real person? A real historical person. In historic documents of the early centuries of the church, Onesimus is mentioned. In Ignatius' letter to the Ephesians, written around 95 to 108 AD, there is one called Onesimus who is said to be a man of inexpressible love and your bishop or your elder. In what is called the Apostolic Constitutions, written between 300 and 400 AD, while discussing, while discussing the bishops or the elders of the church, it says, of Colossae Philemon, of Berea and Macedonia, Onesimus once a servant of Philemon. Think about that. Rebellious slave to adopted child to received and forgiven by his master to active evangelist of the good news of Jesus Christ to a bishop or an elder in Christ's church. Every Christian can identify with Onesimus, rebel, saved, adopted, with a place in the home of our God because of his beloved. What a way to start a year. What a way to live. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, if this offer was made by anyone else but you, we couldn't trust it. But every promise that you have ever made is yes and amen and sure in Jesus Christ, your beloved, who promises to take rebels, rebels who have sinned against you, And he says to you, whatever their debt is, consider my death on the cross to have paid it and paid it in full. And Father, whatever you would do for me, your beloved son, I pray you would do for them. And you do it. It's who you are. 
This is the good news of the gospel. And so, Father, I pray whatever our story, whatever our background, whatever it is, humanly speaking, we believe brought us here today, I pray that you will make clear to both skeptics and sons and daughters that this is forever true because of you. Would you do that? Yes, for our benefit, but ultimately, would you do it for your glory? And may we, as your people, glorify and enjoy you because of Jesus Christ forever. Not just today, but through all eternity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.